0: This has been Moment of Truth with David Moses. Element. Element. Element FM.
1: Welcome to Moment of Truth. I'm your host, David Moses. My guest on the show today is Scott Lucas. And, you know, Scott was just telling me about how things have changed for him quite recently. So you know what I'm going to do? I'm going to let Scott introduce himself.
2: <laughs> yeah. First of all, David, thanks so much for the chance to visit with you and uh, with all your you. Uh, Yes, I I worked at the University of Birmingham in American studies and then in politics uh, from 1989 until last December 31st. So I'm now emeritus professor uh, here at Birmingham in the UK, still have connections with the university and do some work for them. Mm. But I also working with the Clinton Institute uh, Mm. at University College Dublin, Mm -hmm. including on a project called America Unfiltered. Uh, so right. it overlaps with what we'll talk about today. Yes, and I'm also the founder and editor of EA Worldview, yeah. which is a news and analysis site uh, that daily since 2008 has covered not only the United States but also other areas of the world such as Europe, the Middle East, and Iran.
1: Wonderful. Thank you for that introduction. You did a much better job than I could have. So. <laughs> But, Scott, listen, there's some other things that I find interesting about you you yourself because you have a sort of a a universal approach to this. As we said, you are in Birmingham, but you were born in
2: the United States. Yeah, I was born in the other Birmingham. So I was born in Birmingham, Alabama, uh, famous or notorious, some would say, for its (laughs) place in in the civil rights movement in the 60s. Uh, I grew up in Huntsville, which Mm. uh, some of your listeners may know was the center of the space and rocket industry. Mm-hmm. So uh, that was kind of distinctive because I was born during the Cuban Missile Crisis wow. in the city, which was one of the top 10 targets for the Soviet <laughs> Union if we ever went to war. Uh, I, I didn't know it at the time, thank goodness. Uh, but I uh, still have deep roots linked back to the States. I think that's why I'm still invested so much in what's happening mm-hmm. there now, mm-hmm. um, as well as being a, a diehard Boston Red Sox fan for my okay. sons. Uh, so I've had this advantage of, of Growing up in the States, but living in the UK since 1989, feeling Mm. very close to Europe. Mm. And then in a sense, because of the contacts and the ability to, uh, you know, sort of branch out what I do, to have really good close set of friends in areas like the Middle East uh, and Iran, where I've actually taught, uh, and which uh, has been in the news just a bit recently as well.
1: Yes. Well, thank you again for that and giving us that background about yourself. I think it helps us to understand, as you say, your interest in what you are following in politics. In particular, uh, I first was... drawn to your attention because of an article you wrote in The Conversation, and uh, it's an, ar- an article that uh, is entitled, Joe Biden Sends a Clear Message to the Watching World, America's Back. Now, with that article in The Conversation, as I say, that was just after he, uh, he was elected, and he made that uh, inaugural speech, and, and I thought that was a great place to start Uh, This, you know, with this new uh, president, with, uh, you know, as we look forward, I thought it gave us a fresh look. I liked some of the things that you said in that message. I liked, as you pointed out in that, the sincerity with which Joe Biden brought forward. And I think that was... I think that really was was the key in that message. If, if that sincerity, and I think people got a different sense, or at least I did from watching that and listening to him about that expertise. You know, a lot of people criticized him for his age, uh, being the oldest president, those kind of things. But I think that expertise and that wisdom really shone in that speech.
2: Yeah, David, I, I agree. and 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 I now I, again, I'll complain with your listeners. Um, I, You know, I, he was not my favorite candidate in mm. the Democratic primaries. I actually uh, was someone who really thought Elizabeth Warren, you mm. know, would have made a question, still do. But Biden, I think, showed during the campaign against Donald Trump that pragmatism that I think is necessary at a time when the country has gone through so much, is so badly damaged. And not just pragmatism, I think he showed a sense of compassion um, in that here's a man who has suffered a great deal of personal tragedy in his own life. Your listeners might know that his mm-hmm. first wife and his young daughter were killed in a car crash, that uh, his son Bo, who, with mm-hmm. whom he was especially close, yeah, um, was uh, died of brain cancer a few years ago. And so when I heard that speech you had the pragmatist, right? You know, here's, here's what I'm going to do for the country at Mm -hmm. the time of the pandemic, the time of this economic downturn, but it was matched up with this expression of what he wanted. And he he said, you know, again, that phrase he has used quite often, but I think he uses sincerely, you know, the empty chair at people's tables, Mm. you know, that you've lost a relative or you've lost a friend uh, to coronavirus or that you have, seen or gone through the social and racial injustice that goes back decades or when you were fearful for your family because of climate change, it and in part because of the contrast with the previous previous occupant of the White House, it didn't feel like snake oil. Mm. It didn't feel like a simple slogan mm-hmm. or a simple you know diversionary of make America great again. It was we are at a time of crisis. it has been a dark time, but we can get through this. And even if I think that his, the watchword for that speech, which is unity, mm-hmm. is more of an aspiration than a reality mm. in American society and politics, I don't think you're going to unify that country mm. um, at least 100% for a long time. I thought, here's a man who, two things. One is, he comes into office not with, I think, that sense of how am I going to profit from this, how, you know, if I had a Biden organization, how it might make a lot of money or how my ego would benefit. It is, what can we do to make this better? And then secondly, what can we do to make this better in the sense of we, that this isn't just about Joe Biden, Mm -hmm. that it's about other officials in his administration, it's about other people in Washington, but it's about every community across the United States as well. And, And so, yeah, I think that's a very good starting point to take on the challenges of 2021.
1: You know, as you were saying that, I couldn't help it. What struck me was, you know, you're right, because I think that throughout not only was the sincerity in that speech, it was focused on others. It wasn't about Joe Biden. Uh, And that just struck me just now. It it, it was about the country. It was about repairing. It was about building. It was about that unity that, that he spoke about as well. But the other thing that you mentioned about the loss, his own personal loss, about his, his wife, his first wife, his, his daughter, and Bo. And, Beau. and I, I know that he made a statement, something similar to the fact that it should have been Bo there, not him. Um, he was hoping for those, he had those aspirations for his son, I believe.
2: Yeah, I, I, you know, Bo Biden, who, an uh, Iraq war veteran, a uh, prominent lawyer uh, in Delaware um, someone who was very highly skilled and, and, you know, had the possibility of that political career, but I, I don't think it was this kind of, you know, the, you know, the Kennedy story Mm. about, uh, you know, the elder brother of John Kennedy, uh, Joe was the one being groomed for the presidency. And he died. I, if I remember right in a plane crash, Mm. uh, may have, and, and it was John who became president. It wasn't quite this. It was the fact that the Biden family is a genuinely close family, Mm. And that um, I have, dis- you know, I have differences with Joe Biden on some of his policies. Going because he's been in Washington for more than forty years. Mm-hmm. I think some of those, ironically, were highlighted by his now vice president Kamala Harris at the outset of the Democratic primaries. Mm-hmm. But there was always that sense with Biden that is of service to the country, and and I think he's lived it. I think he's lived it mm-hmm. in his time in Congress, uh, and in the presidency. And I think he genuinely saw the idea of Beau. Uh, that he had served his country in the military and now he might serve his country in public office Mm. and go higher. So
1: I heard a statement that said he's the right president for the the right time.
2: What do you think of that statement? I just think you take where we are right now, which is in a pandemic where the death toll will be 500,000 in the United States Mm. during the course of this month, where You had the most serious economic dip since the 1930s last year, although there's been a limited recovery since then, but where you still have millions who have been thrown out of work, where you have the social and racial issues that were highlighted during Mm -hmm. last summer's marches, Mm -hmm. when you're facing that global challenge of climate change, and on top of it, when you have a country, and again, I say this as someone who has a great attachment to where I grew up, but a country which has been polarized and divided, where Dialogue has been replaced by shouting Mm. and you want someone, Joe Biden or someone else, who is competent and who is responsible. And I think in that sense, if Biden and Kamala Harris and his officials are competent and responsible, yeah, they're the right people. Not at a right time, but at a critical time. I think mm-hmm. the most critical time in U.S. history, mm-hmm. and I'm not saying this just to to get a you know a headline on your program. Right. the most critical time since the American Civil War in 1865.
1: Yeah, well, we've had other interviews, of course. We we've spoken to some people in the United States just prior to the election, and and I have to admit, when I asked the question to one gentleman, you know, what what is your sense of the mood, and and you know, it wasn't good. I mean, they were. There was some serious uh, feelings of, of, you know, potential civil war. Uh, it, it was crazy. It was pretty drastic.
2: Yeah, it is. I mean, and again, I, I guess if I can speak from the personal as well as just being an analyst, mm-hmm. you know, I, I came over to the, the UK in the 1980s, but was like watching my country from across the ocean. Mm-hmm. And I was watching the rise of attack media. Um, starting off predominantly with talk radio, with uh, demagogues like Rush Limbaugh, with attack television, uh, with Fox in the 1990s, and you saw this political culture in America just eroding and corroding, where it was a question of getting a soundbite and not getting a soundbite by proposing a policy or trying to to advance a you know a constructive position on an issue, but like insulting the other person or shouting Mm. down the other person Mm. and it this isn't just didn't just happen quote on the right i think it's predominantly been on the right but it happened you know across the political spectrum that was the game that you played to win not by being constructive but destructive Mm -hmm. and i think we've gone through a generation of that and then we had the exploitation of that by if you want to talk about right man for the right time maybe the wrong man at a damaging time, which was Donald Trump. Mm. And Donald Trump was like the snake oil salesman who didn't necessarily cause all the problems. We were coming out of the Great Recession of 2008, 2009. A lot of people, although America overall had recovered, a lot of people had not felt that recovery. We're still trying to make ends meet. There was a bitterness. There was an anger. And Trump came in with a snake oil, which was twofold. One is, um, I'm going to make it all better for you. Hashtag winning. But meanwhile, Blame someone else, Mm. blame the Chinese, blame the Mexicans, blame Mm. the immigrants Um, at certain points, blame the Canadians, Mm. Uh, blame the Europeans. And of course, blame the liberals and the Democrats and the dangerous college professors and the fake news media. And he whipped up that it was dog whistle politics. It was Mm. dog whistle politics to whip up those crowds where you have this bookend that had got him into office in 2017 and then it culminated in the Capitol attack on January 6, 2021. Mm-hmm. And while I think that the right-wing extremist, the right-wing militia, the QAnon conspiracy theorists are a very small minority of the American populace. I still believe they're a small minority. They were that type of minority that could be galvanized and mobilized mm-hmm. to wreak so much damage. And the question now is, whether a line was crossed with the attack on the Capitol. And now the vast majority of Americans begin to say, look, we cannot go down this path any farther.
1: Right. 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 One more question about about Biden and about this article in particular and his, uh, his, his speech, I guess, to some degree. Winning this election, do you get a, a sense that because of what he has been through, because of the many years that he's been in, in politics, Uh, And because of the the situation he comes into, do you think there's a there's a bitter sweetness to for this for him?
2: I, you know, if you if you play the narrative out and you have to get Joe Biden to speak to it directly. Mm. But, you know, you play the narrative out where he first ran for president, I remember back in 1988 uh, and was tripped up because whether wittingly or unwittingly, he plagiarized a speech from a British politician, Neil Kinnock. that he went through the 1990s and was a a bit of a controversial figure, for example, at the time of the the hearings around uh, then Supreme Court nominee Clarence Thomas, that uh, even at the start of this campaign, as I mentioned, he was called out for his record on racial issues by Kamala Harris and stumbled very badly And even up to that point in February, we're having lost badly in the initial Democratic contest in Iowa, New Hampshire. It looked like he was going to be out of this. Mm. Yeah. You know, you have this idea of bittersweet. You have this idea of, you know, those periods of downturn and of failure. But but then you come back to where we are now and indeed what I was observing through that inaugural speech and after that speech. And that is. He's here now. Mm. He's in the White House. Uh, it's after more than 40 years in Washington. I don't think he'll, he'll be a two-term president. I think he's doing mm-hmm. it just for the one term.
1: Mm-hmm.
2: And it's a question not only of what he says, but what he does. And I have been struck in the 13 days of the Biden administration how much they have attempted, and some of which they've already achieved. This is the most ambitious domestic program in U.S. politics since Franklin Delano Roosevelt at another time of national crisis in 1933. You know, the executive orders, which range from immigration to climate change, to the economy, uh, to health care, to uh, racial issues, and of course, to uh, the pandemic, the proposed legislation, including the American Rescue Plan, almost $2 trillion, and the proposed pathway for citizenship to almost 11 million undocumented immigrants. I, I misread this. I thought Joe Biden would get into office as the pragmatist and play it fairly cautious with a divided Congress. He hasn't he and his advisors have gone all out to deal with these issues whether they succeed we'll see but at least they've made the attempt and that is a valuable valuable first step which means hey bittersweet is four years from now wherever we wind up Mm -hmm. hopefully it won't be bittersweet for right now it's not bittersweet everybody's got to be looking for some type of dawn after the darkness
1: right you're listening to Element FM in Toronto and Ottawa, 106.5 in Toronto, 95.7 in Ottawa, anywhere across the country. If you download the Radio Player Canada app, type in one of those two coordinates as well as E-L-M-N-T-F-M, and then listen on your device of choice 24 hours a day, seven days a week. My guest is Scott Lucas. Uh, he is in Birmingham, And not to the American Birmingham, but to the UK Birmingham. And it's a pleasure to have him on the show. We're talking. We started talking about an article that he wrote um, early Jan, well, mid January, mid to late January. In the conversation, it's entitled "Joe Biden Sends a Clear Message to the Watching World: America's Back." However, um, Scott is a very prolific man, as I found out. Uh, He he sent me some other material, and. uh, EA World of View, uh, some articles that he has authored there, and there are numerous ones. And um, Scott, you, you have moved on very quickly from the inaugural speech, and you talk about many other uh, things that the the Biden administration is getting forward. As you just mentioned, uh, they've moved forward very quickly on things. And I'm just wondering if you want to uh, talk about some of those other things that you, you have seen roll out since uh, he was elected
2: yeah it was striking that uh, on the very day that he was inaugurated so he took the oath that i think around about uh, noon in washington and by that afternoon it was I think, 17 executive orders and executive actions mm. and you know rejoining the paris accords mm-hmm. uh, over climate change rejoining the world health world health organization pretty vital step during a pandemic, Mm -hmm. Uh, the initial executive orders to protect the dreamer immigrants, those almost 800,000 young undocumented immigrants that were threatened with deportation by the Trump administration. Uh, But then it was not just those orders, then there had been orders on almost every subsequent weekday, and indeed organized almost day to day around a different theme. So on one day, it was executive orders regarding the the pandemic, for example, uh, the federal mandate to wear masks. Mm -hmm. or the mandate to wear masks, I should say, on federal property, or the measures to uh, increase vaccine distribution. On one day, it was the measures to combat uh, racial discrimination and to encourage diversity. On one day, it was uh, measures to restore environmental protections, uh, to try to get to grips with a number of those issues that have contributed to climate change. And so it's been a very well-organized rollout and doing what Biden could do because... We knew the Senate was divided 50-50. We know that Kamala Harris, the vice president, is the deciding vote. We know that the Democrats' majority uh, is only a handful of seats in the House. But executive orders mobilize the power of the presidency. You know, we we saw it in a very different way with Donald Trump with some very destructive executive orders. Mm. So, for example, the first executive order Donald Trump passed was the so-called Muslim ban, Mm. which was uh, barring entry to the United States from citizens of several mainly Muslim countries, Joe Biden, first day in office, reverses Muslim ban. Right, you know, And whether you're talking about the signal that that sends out regarding religion, whether you're talking about the signal regarding diversity and, for example, the LGBT communities, uh, whether you talk about the signal regarding a uh, woman's right to choose, uh, uh, basic step that Biden has reinstated funding for family planning, uh, not only in the United States, but abroad. You know, these are steps we can debate the policies and they have brought heated debate in the past about whether or not you think this is the way forward but here you have a marker which is not just rhetoric it is action which is being taken in other words the nettle is being grasped on issues and i think for four years we did not see the nettle being grasped the first thing we looked at each day was not what the government was doing in terms of a policy it was donald trump's twitter feed right which is not exactly the path i think you want to go down uh, in terms of responsible governance. Mm-hmm,
1: mm-hmm. right and um his focus, he said he wanted to uh, govern, he wanted to be the president for all Americans, and he was hoping to have people give him a chance. How would you say what he has done so far has, has shown that he wants to do, in, in fact, just that?
2: Well, first, if I can tell you a bit of a personal story, um, which is that uh, both my parents are diehard Trumpists. Um, they live now in Georgia in the Southeast of the United States and my family has split between those who are Trumpist and those who are Republicans, mm. but who are opposed to Trump. Mm. Um, within, I think maybe 48 hours of Joe Biden being inaugurated, my mom had blocked me on Facebook, uh, because of something we had published on EA worldview. Mm. And I think the story to me shows that, you know, Joe Biden is not going to win over, uh, part of the american public Mm. Uh, the the entrenchment the polarization is just too deep right you know he could walk on water like our dear lord jesus christ Mm -hmm. and he still wouldn't be supported by some folks right so what do you do when you're in that position i think you have to in line with the issues we talked about you have to take action on issues that matter to all americans beyond democrat republican beyond left versus right beyond whatever argument is going on on twitter or facebook or instagram And what are those issues that matter to all Americans? It's having a roof over your head. It's having access to health care if you or your family gets sick. It is in the midst of the pandemic, trying to make sure that you don't specifically come down with this virus, or if you do, that you can get quick medical care. Mm. It's dealing with education and making sure that people have the chance to get a decent education, making sure that people can get jobs back if they have lost them in the past year. The more that you can do that, the best antidote to polarization is success mm. success not in continuing to polarize people but in trying to to make the lives of all people just a bit better you know and i can't guarantee biden's going to do that can't guarantee the administration will do it but at least you change the rules of the game if you put it on the footing of what are we going to do for your everyday life in terms of practical measures uh, which is what they've signaled in the past two weeks. And indeed, I think that's what they will continue to signal in the months ahead. Big question is not only whether the Republicans will obstruct them in doing that, but whether the American news media is grown up enough to deal with this mm. on the standpoint of issues and policies, rather than getting drawn into, quite often led by the nose, into the slanging matches that have stood in the ways of issues over the past few years.
1: Mm. I find it interesting what you just said about your personal story. Thanks for sharing that, and about your mom, and about that diehard side of the of the population that are Trumpers, and they're going to stay that way, and that that Biden won't be able to win that certain percentage of the population over, which is it only makes some sense. But I'm just wondering, what what do you think? Without going too far down this rabbit hole, but what do you think the those people and Trump still have to, uh, you know, sustain themselves or what is Trump going to be able to do at this point in time to be able to keep those flames, you know, sort of uh,
2: going? Well, I think first let's look at where we are with, I think, what may actually be the biggest battle in 2021, which is not between uh, the Biden administration and the Republicans. It's within the Republican Party. And that is you don't have a single Republican Party anymore. Mm. You have uh, what you might call the establishment Republicans. You know, think about the legislators that have come up through the ranks over decades, Mm. like the top Republican in the Senate, Mitch McConnell. But then think about those who have either supported Donald Trump or they have adopted his language. They've adopted even his disinformation. Right. And realize that that Trumpist movement within the Republican Party has now fragmented it. Uh, Just a quick signal of this. Remember that on January 6th, which, you know, after the attack on the Capitol, which was meant to stop the congressional certification of Joe Biden as president,
1: Mm -hmm.
2: after the five deaths, after the violence, after hiding in their offices and some of them fearing for their lives, six Republican senators and 138 Republican representatives, more than two thirds of the Republicans in the House voted alongside Donald Trump to block President-elect Biden. Hmm. In other words, they still voted to overturn the election or at least continue to challenge it. Right. That's how much Trumpism is embedded, whether it's because they believe in Trumpism or they see political advantage out of it. Hmm. And when you talk about someone like a Marjorie Taylor Greene, who is from near from where my parents are in Georgia, this is a QAnon supporter. She supports the conspiracy theories. Uh, she is someone who has called for the execution of House Speaker Nancy Pelosi. She is someone who has said that the 2018 mass killings at uh, Stoneman High School in Parkland, Florida, were made up, uh, that they never happened. She has still been put on two important committees by House Republicans. She's on the Education and Labor Committee, and she's on the Budget Committee. That tells you the challenge that the Republicans face, whether they are going to continue to appease or even enable Donald Trump, or whether they're going to draw a line against him. The wider context for that, which gets back to my personal story, there are a number of reasons why people back Donald Trump. Uh, In part, he he offered something that, in a sense, they thought might answer their anger and their fears in 2016. Mm. And even when he couldn't fulfill that by making America necessarily a better place, even economically, he still created a rhetoric. My mother, for example, one reason why she supported Trump is she hates Hillary Clinton with a passion. Mm. who was then the Democratic nominee. There are others who support Donald Trump because they hate China, and he'll talk about the so-called China virus. In other words, there's multiple reasons why people will hang on to Trump and what he'll continue to exploit. Some of that has been limited by the curbs put on the disinformation and put on the lies, and that includes the fact that he cannot go on Twitter to spread these so quickly. But he has raised over $250 million under the guise of reversing the so-called stolen election. And he will use that money, or at least some of it, if he doesn't have to use it to stay out of prison, he'll use it to back his people, his loyalists, to challenge Republican incumbents in 2022 Mm. in congressional races. So while Trump is out of the White House, Trumpism is still very much present in American political culture. The battle continues to try to deal with it and to try to contain its effects.
1: Scott Lucas is a professor emeritus living in Birmingham, UK. You can check out his articles online in The Conversation as well as EA Worldview. Don't go away. We'll be right back with more right after this.
0: Now back to Moment of Truth with David Moses. Element. Element. Element FM.
1: Welcome back to Moment of Truth. It's a pleasure to have you listening to our show each and every day right here on Element FM, as well as other radio stations who happen to be carrying Moment of Truth. It's also a pleasure to welcome to the show my next guest, Daniel McNeil. He's an associate professor of history at Carleton University. I'm going to be talking to him about an article he wrote in The Conversation. It is called Post-Inauguration, Restoring the Soul of Biden's America. Must be truly inclusive. So it's a pleasure to have Daniel on the show. But a little bit more about him: He is an award-winning writer and professor whose work brings together history, diaspora studies, cultural studies, and other fields of inquiry to map the movement of people and ideas within, across, against, and outside the nation-state. He joined Carleton University in 2014 as a strategic hire in migration and diaspora studies and an associate professor in history. In 2015 and 18, he received research awards from Carleton to build sustained connections across university and its local, national and international partners. He currently is uh, cross-appointed with the department of sociology and anthropology the institute of african studies and the institute for comparative studies in literature art and culture so
0: welcome to the show thanks so much david thank you for such a kind and generous introduction as well it's a pleasure to be here
1: well it's a it's a pleasure to have you here on the show so your article post inauguration restoring the soul of biden's america must be truly inclusive now You start off by talking about something you've been working on over the last few months, editing a book about soulful beliefs, practices and feelings that overflow from uh, religion, spiritual origins, secular and profane spaces, but also wondering what Joe Biden means when he talks about restoring the soul of America. So why did this come to you in in the way that it did?
0: So as you mentioned, I'm working on a book that maps the journeys of intellectual discovery taken Mm -hmm. by a political and cultural generation that came of age in the late 1960s and early 70s, really in concert with soulful intellectuals who expose the complacency of profiteers and schemers racing for positions and pensions, and people who were always a little dissatisfied with the totalizing schemes and we're always thinking about how we could probe beneath the surface, how we could connect across color lines, across class lines and imagine a healthier future. And so I'm interested in how these people who were always intrigued by how we authentically connect with the unarticulated desires of people. And they are suspicious or worry of politicians who only pretend to do so. And so when I heard Biden articulate his vision for America, what I was hoping to address and think through was the question of whether this was a political soundbite, whether this was a symbolic gesture, and how it might connect to these other forms of intellectual praxis and engagements with utopian projects to build a better world. Mm.
1: You know, one of the things that come to mind also is when I watched the inauguration, and I believe I I, I heard this, and, and I'd be interested in your take on this, is that he came off very sincere. Th- that whole presentation, everything that came through had a, an air of sincerity.
0: So I was really interested in not just what Biden articulated, but mm. how it was framed mm. and represented by the media. So I was looking and investigating a lot about how his vision of soul was often connected to what people understood to be his past, right? His past as an Irish American, Mm -hmm. his past as thinking and living through a 1960s context, where Mm -hmm. he was a pragmatic politician who did not necessarily support radical positions to desegregate and didn't necessarily uh, put his neck on the line for those types of movements for social justice that Mm. was um, particularly pointed out by Kamala Harris during the debates um, for the Democratic Party candidate. So I think I was trying to address, yes, how we understand authenticity and sincerity, but also the limits of some of the representations that fail to understand that people who live through a particular moment in the 1960s weren't necessarily living segregated lives. Even if people didn't necessarily support Uh, some of the political goals of a civil rights movement. They couldn't help but to be informed Mm. by soul power. And so I was really interested to think about what may have been some unarticulated ways in which soul is not just connected to Biden's past in terms of his Irish-American ancestry or his Catholic faith, but also how living through a moment in the 1960s where he would have had to engage with soul music, with soulful writers, uh, his love of poetry would have shone through, and whether there were some of these interesting links that tend to be overlooked by a media that still is rigidly segregated. Mm.
1: How do you think that this translates in terms of for Biden? And what I mean by that is why why would this be different than looking at, say, Obama or another president in terms of how you're analyzing this in terms of the, the soulful approach that you're taking?
0: My sense is that there are ways in which we are bullied, encouraged. To label people, assign people to particular camps based on their phenotypical appearance. And so there are certain understandings around Obama because of the way in which his body, his comportment is read and linking him to a Black cultural identity. Mm-hmm that are not the same expectations that come when we are encouraged to read or label or assign Joe Biden to a particular cultural or racial camp. And so, yeah, I was really interested in thinking about how this overemphasis on seeing, right? So I, I engage a lot with writers who talk about an centric culture, or a culture that places greater emphasis on seeing and visuality mm. than, for example, careful listening mm. or other other forms of sensory perception. Mm. And so, that was really important for me in terms of addressing. Even the recent past, so let's say if we go back to 2008, when Joe Biden made the infamous comment that he was welcoming Barack Obama's presidential campaign and felt that Barack Obama was the first mainstream African American, Mm. Mm. and I quote, who is articulate and bright and clean and a nice looking guy end quotes and yeah i wanted to think through how someone who'd grown up having certain stereotypes mm. about african-american intelligence and cleanliness uh, someone who could be portrayed as a political dinosaur who's surprised mm. by the existence of an African-American candidate who appeared to him to be eloquent, articulate, Mm. bright and clean, or at least bright and clean to mainstream America. Mm. How he was forced to engage with a different generation of activists who maybe don't have the campaign to say, uh, not all of us look alike but are part of a generation that tends to use the phrase people who look like me to articulate a vision of pride, i.e. to say that Barack Obama, Kamala Harris in positions of power is an inspiration to young children of color who get to see people who quote unquote look like them and equally tend to use the phrase to elicit or gesture towards solidarity or at least empathy and sympathy with the victims of state violence and police violence Mm. uh, who happen to be racialized as black.
1: Okay. So at this point in time when you start to look at that and look at using your your history – Are you, at this point, encouraged? Are you seeing things that are being done that would help you see that that things are moving in the right direction for a healthier healthier future?
0: That's a great question. I always tend to balance optimism of the will with pessimism of the mind, Mm. uh, to paraphrase Gramsci. And I like to not just articulate vain or vague hopes for a present, right? So I think there's a huge danger that simply by pointing to visual diversity, Mm. there is a cheap kind of hope or a sentimental kind of appeal that doesn't, generate deep or transformative change, but just allows people to feel good about themselves Mm. or good about their nation. Mm. And equally, for me, the goal as a historian or as an activist is not just to think about how we can imagine healthier futures, but equally how we can honor our ancestors and how we can think about sending messages across time and picking up messages Mm. across time. Mm. So part of the project is not just to ask, how does Joe Biden or how does Biden's administration or how can we articulate a healthier future? But equally, how can we avoid and challenge the erasure of a black radical tradition of black activist intellectuals from the 1960s or from other periods and eras in our past and in America's past. Hmm.
1: You're listening to Element FM in Toronto and Ottawa. That's 1065 in Toronto, 9578. In Ottawa, anywhere across the country, if you download the Radio Player Canada app, type in one of those two coordinates, as well as ELMNTFM, and then listen on your device of choice 24 hours a day, seven days a week. We'd also like to welcome listeners on other radio stations that are carrying Moment of Truth. We thank you for listening, and if you are listening on your favorite podcast platform... My guest here on Moment of Truth today is Daniel McNeil, and he is an associate professor of history at Carleton University. We're talking to him about an article he wrote in The Conversation. It is entitled, Post-Inauguration, Restoring the Soul of Biden's America, Must Be Truly Inclusive. Daniel, I can't help but think about this history again, that you, you, you obviously bring a lot of wealth and knowledge around history. So we all went through a lot of changes in the last year, having to deal with COVID-19, especially in other areas as well, like Black Lives Matter, uh, the things that we saw happening around that, but more than that, the last four years. When you look at and draw on your knowledge of history and look at what we went through in the last four years and the last year specifically, you know, we certainly feel that, that we all went through a lot of growth, a lot of change, and a lot of searching, soul-searching, in, in specifically, how do you think that that has affected the... Uh, Joe Biden and Kamala Harris and the administration that is going to come into this and help to shape or help that administration reflect on what has been going on? What,
0: what is your sense? Uh, maybe invite reflection around this question to say that part of the important projects that intellectuals have looked at over the past four or five years, as you've mentioned, is how to establish transatlantic conversations Mm. in which North American conversations do not drown out all the others. And so... I think you're right that there's been a lot of soul searching, that people have been sensitized or mm. encouraged to listen more carefully to diverse voices, to scan and address their organizations for, to address and to speak to issues around inclusion but a lot of these discussions have been nation focused or continental focused Mm. and so when people were thinking through black lives matter there tended to be an emphasis on how can we address this to reckon with the united states history of violence and exclusionary uh, state violence and racist violence, but not necessarily to talk about uh, American imperial projects or how incorporating certain individuals, uh, non-white individuals into cabinets or into positions of power in the United States does not necessarily mean that black and brown bodies outside of the United States are not viciously targeted by corporate capitalism and also by American military projects. And so that global dimension, I think, will be an important area for us to think through, to address, to continue... To hold all political figures accountable. Uh, you mentioned that one of your other guests is uh, speaking, and from the U- Birmingham. Mm. And one of the political figures that inspired me growing up in the UK in Liverpool was a figure such as Tony Benn, who always asked people to think. About how their political leaders are elected, how they are given or granted power, and to always insist on asking their political leaders, How can we get rid of you? And if they're unable to give clear answers about process, transparency, then they're not necessarily accountable to their publics and to their. Uh, citizenry Mm. and so yeah i'd I'd really like to emphasize that point around true accountability Mm. beyond surface level Mm. but also how that responsibility is not confined to our national borders but extends to thinking about yeah what type of clothes we're buying what Mm. purchases are we making Mm and also what types of military regimes are we upholding or failing to challenge?
1: Yeah, they're all of course very important, big questions in some areas that we need to think about. Perhaps, we will start to see those changes made as we start to reflect more on this new normal that we're going to find ourselves moving into once this COVID situation has been resolved and everyone is, that wants to be inoculated with the, uh, the, the vaccine gets that. And we have this herd immunity that we can move forward and start to open things up again. And now, what, what about Biden? And you know, you're talking about the, the big picture, the, the global picture biden has had two messages he spoke to the nation of course but he also spoke to the world and you were talking in world uh scope there as well in terms of what you were addressing how would you say that what you are talking about has impact in terms of america moving forward from a new world that we're going to be living in
0: okay yeah again that's one of the reasons why I'm always stimulated or inspired by history Mm. is to think about the ways in which, you know, let's say that 1960s context Mm -hmm. was about a new world or a new dawn coming. Mm. And how did people from Charleston to Accra to Marseille, to Johannesburg connect their struggles to conceive, imagine, struggle, work for a better world. Uh, Part of the article in the conversation was drawing on the inspiring work of the South African activist intellectual Steve Biko who articulated a vision of Black consciousness Mm. that was not about pigmentation, but was about mental consciousness and people's willingness to fight neocolonialism wherever it may be in the world. And that vision of Steve Biko's Black consciousness is an invitation for Indigenous activists, for Irish liberation figures, for people fighting for freedom in Quebec, the various uh, groups and individuals to consider how many of the forms of management and governance that they're fighting against can be connected. All right. So I think about this a lot in terms of my research on multiculturalism. Mm. So some of the programs established in World War II uh, in Canada to try and build or monitor the ways in which communication was passed to non-British and non-French groups were developed by British military officials who had experience in colonial governance. And I'm always inspired by work that rather than merely focusing on one kind of dimension always encourages us to draw these connections so that the type of discourse that we see in the United States around national conversations about race, the conversations we see in the United Kingdom around a reckoning with colonial history, and race relations and the kind of discourses we see in Canada that tend to say that racism is something that happens elsewhere Mm. are not struggled against in isolation, but connected and connected in part of the project that allows us to see more clearly and establish content and cutting edge to our projects for liberation
1: mm. uh, daniel it sounds like to some degree what you're 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 hoping we can work towards is is something greater than uh, you know some of the things you you refer to with uh, when kamala harris was elected as vice president and uh how that message was sent that she's giving hope to young people of color Um, who who look like her, and uh, she's on the cover of leadership that looks like me. It it sounds like you want, and hopefully you want us to move beyond that, something that we seem to get tied up in, and, and that is the superficial, and you want us to look beyond that. I guess that's what I was talking about in terms of scraping that veneer away and looking beyond so that we can start to look more seriously uh, and not just, uh, ju- not just take things for granted like we used to in the past and, and actually take ourselves more serious. All of us take ourselves more serious as we move for- forward into a healthier future.
0: Yeah, but, and also recognize the people who have struggled against mm. those types of superficial representations mm. and the types of co-optation of radical movements in the past. So I I think you're right that a lot of people are making clear that they refuse to accept or promote or be bought off by certain types of symbolic gestures. But equally... There've been so many courageous groups, individuals who have always been about challenging egotism, Mm -hmm. challenging exaggerated individualism. Mm -hmm. And so I fully support what you're saying in terms of this is a project about imagining a healthier future. But at the same time, it's also about recognizing the courage of freedom fighters, workers, cultural workers, and many of the unnamed and unrecognized figures who took part in uh, gestures, resistance, that goes without manifestos or loud proclamations, Mm. but is embedded in the everyday, in the messages of uplift and in the cultural politics of value, worth, and significance that is often intangible but takes place in everyday interactions and that I think really comes back to the really powerful comments you were making about how we've reflected on our experiences in the pandemic and how we have hopefully reflected and clarified the types of interactions and everyday interactions that add value to our lives, to our communities.
1: Nicely said, Daniel. Thank you so much. We're going to have to end the conversation there, but it's been a real pleasure speaking with you. I want to thank you for your time uh, to join us on the show. That's Daniel McNeil. He's an associate professor of history at Carleton University. We were speaking with him about his article in the conversation post-inauguration restoring the soul of Biden's America must be truly inclusive. And it was a pleasure to have him on the show. That is our show for today. Thank you for listening to Moment of Truth each and every day. I'm your host, David Moses. We'll see you again tomorrow.
0: This has been Moment of Truth with David Moses. Element. Element. Element FM.